Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Massimo, welcome to the War Room. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you have a new book out, um, The Quest for Character. Let's unpack. That's a that's a that's an interesting title because mm-hmm. talk on the show a lot about ethics, morality, of course, with history. Um, you have studied this for you know, from a lot of different angles for uh, your career. So, a why this book now, and then b when you say the quest for character, unpack what's in the meaning there. Yeah, good questions. Uh, why the book now? Well, I've been interested in character and virtue and ethics as a sort of as a personal way of, of uh, you know, living a good life, that uh, this has been a culmination, basically, of, of interests that I've developed over a number of years. But also, you know, we are, we live in a world where we don't ask anymore ourselves the question of, you know, how can I be a, a better person? And um, why do I keep voting for people who are clearly not good people, and so on and so forth? So, so I figured that uh, this may be a good time to, uh, or at least as good a time as any other, uh, to get that conversation going again. So that is part of the the project of of the book. Now, the basic idea behind the title of the book is that it, character is a quest because you know we're never perfect, uh, unless you are the equivalent of a stoic sage or enlightened Buddha. Uh, we're not perfect, and that's okay. I mean, this it's we're human beings, but not being perfect doesn't mean that we cannot do better, it doesn't mean, mean that we cannot improve ourselves. And so, we all ideally could engage in a quest for a better character for self improvement, uh, in the sense of becoming a better person, not just a healthier person, which is fine, physically healthier person, or more successful in terms of career, which is also fine. Uh, we pay, however, a lot of attention to things like career, health, wealth, and so on and so forth, and not as much attention, I think, uh, to ethical self-improvement. Okay, and so one of the things that I've thought about is when you go back in history, um, we had someone on the I don't know the other day, and in the issue of slavery briefly got mentioned, and it was interesting because the the guest kind of made the argument that slavery is no longer a moral issue. And I didn't push back, but I thought well, it actually is. It's just one that we all morally are on the same side of now, right? So it's not. It's still a question of morality. We just all find the morality to be from the same vantage point. Um, so as you go back in history, you know, you could go back to slavery, obviously, and find that the, the moral arguments there. So as you go back in history, though, you find that the the morality of different eras is different than ours today. So right. when you look back and you're saying, well, how do you build character? Obviously, some of the morality they had back then would be similar to what we have today and some of it would be different. How do you try to extract the best of what they have while also understanding that where we're at today, we have moral blind spots as well? Yeah, that is an excellent question. So so a couple of things. I think you're absolutely right. Of course, slavery is an ethical issue. And also, uh, slavery takes different forms, right? I mean, we don't – most in most societies today, we don't have slaves as they were – 
uh, in you know in colonial times two or three hundred years ago, or as they, as they were in Greco-Roman times. But we do have other forms of subjugation that m might be pretty close to mm. to uh, to slavery. Um, you know, exploitation of other people, exploiting other people. It's always been a thing for human beings. Sure. So the the issue is not gone entirely. However, it is one of those examples where one can point to moral progress. I do believe in the notion of moral progress and the the fact that as you put it as you put it a minute ago, we are all on the same side these days of the issue of slavery or at least most of us uh counts for me as moral as moral progress that people have reasoned about these things and thought, yeah, Actually, the notion of owning another human being is awful, and and we really shouldn't do it anymore. Now, the related question, and the, the second question you ask is, you know, so when we go back to, let's say, the Greco-Romans or the ancient Indians, if one is interested in Buddhism, mm. or anything else, really, that comes from two or three thousand years ago, two and a half millennia ago, uh, the question is, well, why should we pay attention to what was said by people who owned slaves, for instance, uh, or who, who ignored women uh, as as part of as if they were not an actual part of society and so on and so forth? And I think the answer is that when you go back and examine cultures from the past, you need to do two things. On the one hand, obviously acknowledge their limitations. I mean, it would be it would be crazy or at the very least disingenuous to ignore the fact that the Greco-Roman societies were based on slavery and that and that they were obviously not treating women as human beings. I mean, that would be historically false and, and disingenuous. That said, however, what we're interested in, I think, is not only a knowledge uh, false, but also learning from the stuff, the good stuff where, that that those people were doing, and it turns out that the Greco Romans were doing a lot of good stuff in terms of you know there was a lot of thing, a good thinking going on, a lot of the modern ideas that we're so proud of, beginning of course with the obvious one, democracy, uh, did come from the Greco Romans, and so it does pay. I think it, it's it's important to pay attention to th what they were thinking and and uh, try to see if they still have something to say to us today that is useful? I think the answer to that latter question is yes. Now, it's yes because we're talking about ethics and not, let's say, about science, right? So if I, I'm a scientist also as a, as a background, right? And uh, if you were to ask me, you know, should I, put, should I pick up Aristotle's physics or biology uh, in order to learn something useful, I would say absolutely not. Uh, because those books, you know, what Aristotle wrote about physics and biology is interesting and important in terms of history of ideas, but you're not going to learn anything uh, that would get you into a physics department today or into a biology department today. It's just not, it's not, it's, we, we've gone, we moved way too past. However, if we, you were to say, you know, should I pick up Aristotle and uh, am I likely to learn something from his politics or his ethics? I would say absolutely yes. Because those ideas are still very valuable today. They still underpin most of our discourse in terms of what kind of society we want and what kind of human beings we want to be. And that's why we're talking about these things. Okay, so let's go back to the example of Aristotle with his his, his science. Um, as someone who's not familiar, okay? So I can see your argument, hey, we, we've got modern medicine, engineering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there value in studying at least how he thought about working through those issues, why these things might be problems, how to solve them. So not exactly the end result, but 
is there something to glean from the thought process to look at something from a different vantage point that you can still glean when you read those type of writings? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's that's why those type of writings by Aristotle or the Stoics or you know other other people are valuable in terms of history of ideas. That I think that there's always something to learn from the history of ideas. You know, why would the, these people thinking this way? Uh, how did they develop their thinking? And what can that tell me about perhaps my own limitations today in the 21st century? My own blind spots. You know, the, recognizing blind spots in other people in other cultures and times it's a valuable exercise if you're using that as a way to put a spotlight on your own potential blind mm. spots if you're just doing it because you want to feel you know superior and sure. smug about uh how good you are today well then then that's that's just feeding your ego and not doing any, anything good yeah we had on uh michael strevens uh, a few episodes back and um, he's talking about how modern scientists are very focused on very very small minute details because of just the tools and technology if you were to look back at scientists a few hundred years ago, um, they would talk about uh, God, perhaps, and how their science relates to God and how in, in this broader worldview. And so um, thinking through just kind of that mentality of a modern day approach, which is very technical, very analytical, very, very small, um, it, it could be helpful to think of someone who um, looked at the world with a little bit more broader landscape and try to tie that in. Maybe not as well. It, that's also It's also a risk that you can emphasize too far from one side to the other. And so I can see both sides yeah. of that. Yeah. Look, modern scientists simply cannot afford to talk about metaphysics and, and think that broadly because modern science has to be specialized. If you want to advance in you know, a subfield of physics or in a subfield of biology or something like that, you're going you're gonna to have to work on something very tiny, very specific uh, that, that does not allow, and you have to spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, both in terms of, you know, studying the literature, writing grant proposals, do the actual experiments and so on and so forth. So the notion of a, a, a modern scientist as a renaissance man, so to speak, uh, is just out of the question. I mean, it's not it's not the result of the fact that modern scientists are narrow minded. It's just that that is the nature of the beast. After yeah. the invention of the modern academy in the late 19th, early 20th century, that's just the way it works. It also, by the way, works in other fields. If you are a modern, you know, analytic philosopher, for instance, you will probably spend most of your career talking about a very tiny sliver of what counts as philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are, you know, a literary critic uh, or somebody in the English department, you're going to spend most of your time on one author in your entire career. And in fact, not even on the entire production of that author. So, so it goes for all academic fields. Now, that said, is there a value in occasionally at least zooming back and looking at the big picture? Absolutely. I just think that now nowadays, this is a matter of division of labor. It's philosophers of science who do that rather than the scientists. We have to remember that the word scientist is actually a very recent coinage. It was coined in the early 1800s by William Weevil, who was a philosopher. And scientists, up to what we call today scientists, up to that point, uh, considered themselves natural philosophers. Right? So Galileo, Newton, all the way up to Darwin. Darwin himself referred refer to himself as a natural philosopher, not, not as a scientist. The, the, the concept just wasn't there. So mm. science kind of spun out, uh, out of philosophy uh, over a period of about 300 years from Galileo until the late 1800s. 
And what happened in the meantime, however, is the origin, the birth of a separate subfield of philosophy known as philosophy of science. I got, arguably, the first philosophers of science were, in fact, the, the just mentioned William Wivell and John Stuart Mill. These days, we, we think of Mill as the originator or, or one of the originators of the utilitarian philosophy in ethics. But he was also very much interested in the nature of science and the nature of reasoning, et cetera, et cetera. So philosophy of science originated, started out in the early 1800s. Not a coincidence. That was the time when science was beginning to be a, its own field, independent of philosophy. So if we now move back to the, you know, I guess, forward to the 21st century, uh, I think it's the job of philosophers of science broadly to uh, look at science from the outside and see what are the big pictures here? How do they connect with more you know with broader metaphysical issues what does the modern scientific worldview tell us about issues such as free will uh, god uh, and and the nature of reality so broadly speaking of course the philosophers have to do that with while being highly informed by the science you know a philosopher modern philosopher cannot afford to talk about metaphysics anymore without directly being formed by physics, biology, and all the, the the sciences, because otherwise you're talking not you risk not talking nonsense. You, you risk talking things that are that are decoupled from reality as we understand it. So I think it's a nice back and forth. There are some scientists who are uh, interested in the big picture, and those are the ones that tend to talk to philosophers and and vice versa. Like for instance, I don't know, just to come up with one name, Sean Carroll in in cosmology. You know, he's a cosmology, he's a scientist, but he clearly has an interest in philosophy and he listens to what philosophers uh, have to say, sometimes correcting them if they don't get the science right, and sometimes accepting uh, their own corrections if he doesn't get the philosophy right. Okay. One of the things that I thought of when you're talking there about this kind of um, emergence um, as we're right now is something like Operation Paperclip to where you bring in these German scientists to the U.S. post-World War II. And, and I'm curious, from kind of a historical perspective, if you go back, is kind of that modern science movement something that allows us to say, okay, these are scientists, they're good at rocket propulsion or whatever all the things they're good at. Therefore, they can be an asset here, despite where they came from and some of the philosophical things, whereas in maybe two, 300, 400 years ago, people might have been a little bit more hesitant because that kind of, uh, cross of morality versus science? That's an interesting question. I'm not so sure that people in the past were necessarily more moral or more ethical mm. uh, than, than we are today. We certainly live in a, in, a, in a world where there is a lot of pressure to make progress very fast, especially mm. if we're talking about the kind of technology you're referring to, which is essentially military technology. Right. Uh, and uh, But that's been the, the case in the past. I mean, you know, Leonardo was working for the uh, Sforza in Milan making, you know, uh, war machines. So, uh, or at least thinking about, about war machines. So it's not, this is not exactly a new thing. Um, Archimedes back in Syracuse 2000 year ago he was walking working about ways to defeat the the, the Roman invaders so this has always kind of been the case to to, to some extent uh, philosophers and um, intellectuals have always either been involved directly in uh, development of technology and science or at least they needed patrons to to survive and to thrive so this is really not a new thing i think the pace is different 
that is modern in, in modern times, 20th century, 21st century, the, the pace at which, you know, the speed at which these things happen and which technology is changing and the, the number of people that are involved in it, including obviously the kind of scientists you're talking about, that's definitely gone up dramatically. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of scientists alive in the today in the world is far greater than the number of scientists that have ever been in the world, uh, you know, in the last 2000 years. Mm. Okay. So let's go back to the question of moral progress. We talked about slavery a little bit, um, but there are still some things, you know, from the time of Socrates, um, like war, um, you know, <laughs> that's a big one. <laughs> as you mentioned, we, we might not have, I mean, there, there's parts of the world where slavery still exists. I don't want to pretend like it's completely eradicated, but in the West, it's definitely frowned upon, um, overt slavery. There are, we could argue, uh, you know, ways in which people might be, Rest, I guess you could say other ways. Um, but what are some of the other progresses we made um, since Socrates that you think are important to highlight? Well, treatment of women, for one thing, uh, mm -hmm. that has been, you know, it, it took quite a while <laughs> to make progress there. Uh, I mean, you can argue that uh, there was a little bit of progress later during Roman times when, for instance, uh, women, at least patrician women, were... Uh, granted the ability to own property and to inherit property. That was a big deal. Uh, and that happened during the Roman Empire. Uh, but then, of course, there's the big dip that we refer to as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Sometimes the term is still used where things kind of regressed. I would, by the way, I would want to point out that I don't believe that the moral arc of the universe necessarily becomes, you know, bends toward justice or morality as it is often presented. I don't think there is a moral arc of the universe. We make progress uh, by struggling with ideas and how to implement them, and we can easily backslide. Uh, so most of the Middle Ages was a time of, of backsliding. Uh, there are there were exceptions, but but most of it was you know going backwards. So so I don't think that there is any guarantee that we're making progress that we make progress or that the progress once achieved is gonna is gonna stay. Nevertheless, I think in the if you take the whole the very big picture, at least in terms of Western history that we're talking about, there has been progress. So the treatment of women is certainly uh, one uh, one example. Uh, Trade of minorities much more recently had we've made significant progress. I mean, in the United States, for instance, if you were talking about gay rights 20 years ago, people would have looked at you like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, and now it's something that the majority of Americans are in agreement uh, on, despite the fact that there are people who are trying to roll it back. So there are multiple examples. Now, the big one is war. Uh, clearly, we're still engaged in war. I'm not as much as an optimist as some authors like Steven Pinker, for instance, who you know recently published a couple of books arguing that, oh, things are getting better no matter, no matter what. Eh, maybe, maybe not. It depends on how you look at it. Certainly, war is still with us. And you know, to, to say that we made progress, even though we just closed the century we, for the first time ever, we had two world wars and the use of atomic weapons, it seems a little questionable. You know? uh, so I don't know. We have made progress in in one sense, however, in terms of war. Just like slavery, we all agree it's a bad thing at this point. At least most of us agree it's a bad thing. And we have try, tried to implement far more efforts in terms of diplomacy. For instance, the creation of the, the League of Nation, uh, Nations in 1919 after World War I, which failed, 
but then after World War II, the creation of the United Nations, which has its problems, but nevertheless, these are all uh, instances where people at an international level recognize that war is a bad thing. If you were talking to the Romans or the or the Greeks, they would have told you that war is part of no, normal part of life. This is how you know conquering other people is how you your economy thrives. So it was not only a normal thing, but it was an accepted thing by default. The fact that we do not accept war by default, even though we still engage in it, uh, I think it's another example of progress. Uh, you know, I'll I'll take progress anywhere I I can reasonably defend it. Okay. And so the the question I think has to be. Um, if we were to get Socrates on the podcast as me and him talking, uh, and you say all this, he might look at you and say, well, you're crazy because this, 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 and this. How do we morally argue that we are making progress? Because that's really the crux of the question, right? Because um, if you go back to you know 400, uh, 400 years ago, 600 years ago, 1,000 years ago, they might look at what you just said and say, no, 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 that's regression. That's not progress. Right. And so knowing that we we have blind spots in 2023, knowing they had blind spots when they lived, how do we gauge which of the advances is progress and which one of them, which one of them is a regression? Yeah, that's an interesting thought experiment. I actually think that if Socrates or Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, were all of a sudden joining us for a podcast uh, today, uh, they might agree with, with, with what we're saying a lot more, I think, that, than... Uh, than one might uh, assume at first. Of course, they would have to be given enough background information about where we are and what sure. the his history is, uh, has been, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, th those were smart people. I think they would have, um, they would be able to to transcend their own their own culture at least to a point. However, your basic question is is fundamental. That is, you know, how do we even argue that there is such a thing as moral progress, you know, and what counts for, for mm -hmm. moral progress other than giving examples, just like in the way I've, I've, I've done in the last few minutes. Well, I think the one good way to, that to, to help with that question is to ask ourselves, you know, what, what is ethics about or morality about? And I think it helps there to go back to the etymology of those two words. So ethics come from the Greek ethos. And the Greek ethos was how Cicero, the Roman, one of the, you know, arguably the most important Roman philosopher, translated uh, ethos into uh, Latin. And he used the word morales, which, of course, is where morality comes from. So for all effective purposes, ethics and morality are the same thing, as far, at least as far as the Greco-Romans were, were concerned. And both of those words have roots that make reference to two things, character and society. So in other words, ethics is about how do we behave when we need to get along with other people, right? So ethical progress, broadly speaking, means that we are getting along better. If we get along better with other people, and if we uh, live in societies where people flourish, uh, or at least more people have a chance to flourish than before, then that means that we'd be making ethical progress. And in that sense, I think it's unquestionably true that we have made progress. Modern societies have by far the largest, at least modern democratic or semi-democratic societies, have by far the large, largest number of people that can pursue their own interests, that have somewhat independent lives, that not only they're, they're above subsistence level in terms of economics, that could pursue their projects, etc. Now, we still have huge amounts of problems. 
And of course, there are societies, even in the 21st century, where that doesn't happen. But broadly speaking, I think you and I and most people that live in uh, these kind of societies, not just the West, but also, let's say, Japan, you know, most of South America and so on and so forth. I think it, it'd be hard to imagine that we would be willingly exchange our current place with anywhere else or any any time else in the history of humanity. Why? Because if you go back to Greece or Rome or ancient India or ancient China, et cetera, et cetera, unless you were lucky to be one of the top 0.1%, you were really having a crappy life. And even the top 1% did not really have the kind of life that we take for granted in terms of personal liberty, uh, ability to pursue projects, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, if we if we really understand ethics, not as, as narrowly as sometimes it is done today as the study of right and wrong, mm -hmm. but as the, 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 the notion of how do we make a, uh, human life worth living within a human society, then I think we made progress. And so by that standard though, well, I don't, I generally agree, obviously, by the standard, even though China would make the same argument, that's part of the argument that they've made is that they brought, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty into what they would consider a middle class, which isn't, anywhere near our middle class living, but they have a middle class. And so is this argument of improvement, um, is it kind of relative to where we're at as well? So you might have in the West, we might have one standard of living, but in China, relative to where they were 40 years ago and to where most people are, not most people, but a large portion of people are now, um, they've made a similar improvement. It just doesn't look the same as the West. And so those those arguments around um, people getting along, people being able to flourish, Obviously, they're held back because of the regime, but, yeah. but they are better, relatively speaking. I don't think the Chinese are flourishing at all. Uh, they are, uh, or the Russians for that matter, they're certainly better off than they were before in terms of material uh, living. Yes, but I'm talking about when, when I say flourishing, I don't mean just material living. And you do need a, a certain amount of material you know, resources, obviously. But a lot of research in modern social psychology tells you that the amount of, of material resources that a human being needs in order to be happy, if they also have the ability to pursue uh, their own projects, the ability to express their, themselves and so on and so forth, it's actually fairly low. Uh, we don't need a lot of material resources. So places, a place like China, without a question, has made, uh, you know, uh, technical as well as as as, as well as material events uh, in terms of whether flourishing understood as the ability of their people to express themselves uh, to go about freely not only within china but 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 abroad uh, to pursue their projects to uh, to express their opinions N no i don't think so <laughs> okay so you need both is what you're saying so you that would be your pushback to a Chinese or maybe a Russian or North Korean, North Korea would have a hard time arguing any of that. But but with right. China, um, they would try to argue something like that. And you would say, no, 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 no. Um, while you have brought up the standard of living for some, there's still larger issues that are going to um, cast your ca cast this argument negatively against you guys. That, that That's exactly right. Yes, that, that would be my perspective. Okay. And so as we continue to progress, we need to think of flourishing not only as um, median income or GDP growth or whatever, but it's the ability for someone to see the future and to believe at least that they have the ability to go and to 
um, live their life, improve their life, or whatever that might be, but they're not restrained like a, a slave, to use the term, would have been 200 years ago. Correct. So flourish, of course, you know, the term flourishing is interpreted differently by diff- even by different philosophical traditions. But if you go to the basic notion, which is the one that Aristotle articulated, you know, more than 2000 years ago, flourishing does include a certain amount of material resources. I mean, you do need a little bit of wealth. Uh, you need a little bit, you know, you need a, a roof on it or your head. You need that that sort of stuff. You need security uh, for sure, right? Physical security and as well as financial security. But then Aristotle said, yeah, but those are necessary but not sufficient as we would put it uh, today. What, we, what that allows is also the... Um, free expression of ideas, the free pursuit of your own projects. If you want to do, you know, devote your life to do one thing rather rather than another, Uh, the free interaction with with other people, the ability to travel and the ability to learn. So engage in education uh, and so on and so forth. Those are the kinds of things that are missing largely in, in places like China and Russia. And so you started off by saying part of the thing with the book and some of your things that you've um, thought about is is why do we keep voting for, I'm already said, but bad people or the wrong people or people who don't take care of us or, or or whatever, which is a fascinating way to put it because depending on where you live on the political spectrum, you always think the other side is trying to do that, right? right. <laughs> so it's an interesting way to phrase that. So how do we evaluate? Because part of it is, some of the things we talked about, but then part of it is going to be tied to a belief around economics and, 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 and what laws should be in place. And so how do you unpack this? Because just to be clear, I would say that there's someone who could espouse a position that's, that's quite um, in line with you, but they could be just the worst person ever. So, so you have that as well, but, but, but a lot of these arguments are tied just to policy and kind of how the policies are. So how would you unpack how you're determining who the good leaders are, the bad leaders are, and and why people are voting for the wrong ones. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of components there, right? On the one hand, we're all concerned, and rightly so, with the specific policies, right? It's one of the first things you ask yourself, presumably, when you're about to decide to vote for a politician or or, or another, is what's their platform? What is it that they're trying going to try to do um, if they get elected? And that's an obviously reasonable question. I mean, we certainly should be paying attention to the ideas that these people are kind of pushing. But we don't ask ourselves what kind of person this this individual is. Is he honest? Is he generous? Is he reasonable? Is he willing to compromise? Is he, um, you know, temperate? Is he courageous? Willing to take risks uh, if 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 the case maybe even at the at the cost of uh, sort of personal uh, personal loss, those are just as important questions, and I would argue actually even more important questions than the specific policies. Because quite frankly, you know, I consider myself a broadly speaking a progressive liberal, although the meaning of those terms uh, keeps changing uh, very quickly. So, but broadly speaking, I'm on the left side of the political spectrum, right? And yet I would rather vote for a, um, at least moderate, if not even conservative politician. If I think that that, if I thought that that person was a good person with good intentions, willing to compromise, honest, et cetera, et cetera, rather than somebody who claims that he's mm-hmm. on my side in terms of policies, but then he's into self-aggrandizing and narcissist and, you know, um, 
or or simply even unwilling to compromise because as it turns out if you're not willing to compromise you're not going to get anything done in politics that's what that's one of the major things about politics you know it's it's not just you you're not the emperor you have to work together with uh, dozens or hundreds of other people in order to make decisions and if you're not willing to compromise from the beginning uh, then you're not going to get anything done so I think we we gotten to the point where character is either irrelevant or even consider a bad a bad word uh, especially, unfortunately, I, I must I must admit, from people from the left, uh, a lot of my colleagues and friends, when they when they hear the word character, they think, oh, that's something the conservatives uh, em- emphasize, and you know, it doesn't take character. A focus on character ends up blaming the victims because it doesn't it ignores the structural issues in society, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that may very well be true. So there certainly are structural issues in societies, but at the end of the day, those structural issues are going to be addressed by individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to change a structure unless we, as individuals, come together and honestly so. work. Yeah, right. So, so uh, at the end of the day, it still comes down to: Can I trust that person? Is that person somebody who really has the heart in the right place? Uh, and then we're going to be able to talk about structural changes and what kind of structural changes we want to do. Structures aren't going to change themselves. It's it's still people that do it. Mm. Okay. First off, let me just say I don't think any of them are genuine. <laughs> so that's my stance. I <laughs> I I and 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 let me just be clear here. I hear a lot of people say that I believe it. I don't take any of them, or, or, uh, especially at the highest offices. So I'll put my cards on the table right there. I assume if you're Pelosi or if you're Trump or if you're Cruz or if you're uh, Vice President Harris, I assume that you are there to manipulate to get the vote. That that that's and that's maybe too cynical of me, but that is where I because to your point about the character, um, when you stop and you just think about what it takes to ascend to the highest offices in our country. It's it's hard to be a really good moral person and to kind of have those ethics. It would seem just the longer they're there, how it goes. So um, I do take character into consideration, which makes it very hard to vote for anyone. <laughs> so well, so let me let me say let me yeah. say one thing about this. I, you know, you're not the only, you're not alone there in that kind of position. I, I guess I am slightly more optimistic. I think that a small fraction of politicians actually do have a decent character they are that they are trying to do their best but i do agree that it's a fraction it's certainly not the majority which means that we have a problem mm-hmm. now you say we live in a system where it is the system itself that sort of um, mm-hmm. you know selects essentially for certain people uh that are that are willing to to do uh, to manipulate and mm-hmm. willing to sure. be corrupt etc cetera, etc cetera. But I would push back slightly on that. I, I would say, sure, there certainly are systemic issues. But at the, the end of the day, who puts these people in charge? We do. No, oh, I'm so right. So, so we, yeah. we are the ones who, who are going to there and actually vote. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And and so at the end of the day, it's it's sometimes I think it's a little too um, convenient or easy to blame the system and blame the people that mm-hmm. are in charge right now without doing a self-analysis and say, but wait a minute, <laughs> these people are serving at our pleasure. Yes. And so long as we live in a semi-democratic country, at the end of the day, the buck stops with us. Oh, right. yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, let's let's delve into that for half a second. The reason 
uh, so people are for argue maybe for term limits. And I, and I say, no, 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 we, we don't need term limits. What we need is, is for you to be willing to vote for, um, you said you're a progressive uh, liberal, liberal. What we need is, is for someone like you to vote for the Green Party instead of the Democrats enough times so the Democrats will actually appeal and put the policies that you might want in place, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and the people don't have the will to use their vote to shape how who's running. And so to me, uh, one of the biggest problems we have is, is that when someone gets in, uh, if they're Democrat or Republican, you're basically going to run, going to keep them in for life because you're so afraid to vote third party or vote for opposite party that you're never going to be a deterrent there. And so the problem comes back to the people. I wish people would have the cynicism that I have because then you would go, listen, I'm going to vote third party for the next 12 years so that my party would realign and change or the third party would actually get in. I want to do that. That's the sacrifice it takes. And oh, by the way, if the third party becomes corrupt, I'll vote. I would rather lose in, in a sense yeah, right. to shift the party. And But you have to, for me, at least it seems you have to start with the, if you take, you know, let's take um, um, uh, Trump or Biden, it doesn't matter, either one. Um, there are plenty of things to be critical of them. And their opponents will be critical of the things that usually are on the margin and kind of silly and, and kind of goofy. It's like, okay, there are actually things to be critical of here on both sides, a lot of them. Let's talk about those things. Well, those are really heavy and weighty and we have to think about it. And if we criticize them, we might find ourselves guilty of our previous candidate doing that. And so what we ha- what we do is we say, well, we're going to just defend our candidate at all times and try to ignore the accusations. And so then you kind of put yourself in this position to where you're their issue of character goes out the window because now you're constantly defending. And, and so to me that I am with you, I don't know if we agree with how you should tackle the problem, but I am very much in agreement that the problem is the people, people don't have the will to actually push people out because they're afraid to lose. Right. No, I, I absolutely. Now, you know, as you know, this is a really complex problem, which has both individual and structural components and there is no silver bullet, right? There is no no simple way. It's not like you're going to read my book and say, oh yeah, there it is. There's the answer. <laughs> wait, um, wait, wait. Right? That was the promise when you came on the podcast. You're going to fix it all. Sorry. Long, no? <laughs> <laughs> However, that is why I wrote that kind of book. That is why we're having these kind of conversations because I think there are aspects to the problem that are not, that we don't talk about uh, enough. One we just touched on, that is an increasing number of people just doesn't seem to pay attention to the character of the people that vote for they vote for that doesn't seem to be pay attention to their own character and and say you know am i a better a, a good person you know good enough person we all think that we're good but are we you know could i be better uh how do i how do we mention this how, how do i do this but the other thing that we do not talk is so how do we teach the next generation to be more ethical uh in the broad sense that i'm talking about not just be more ethical in the sense of doing the right thing and not the rent, the, the wrong thing. That that would be like a minimum level yeah. of you know minimum standard. But to be more ethical, as in to be better members of societies, to be a, a better uh, at, at not only flourishing themselves but working toward a society that allows people in general to flourish. And of course, surprise, surprise! I think the answer there is we should teach ethics and we should teach virtue we should teach character improvement to kids and we don't do it by by and large we don't do it in fact so much so that when there are the the few examples the few cases where we do them people actually make movies out of them or documentaries out of them i'm thinking about a specific case there was a documentary that came out uh, last year 
Uh, it's called Young Plato. And it's about the principal of an elementary school in Belfast in Northern Ireland who decides to teach practical philosophy to his kids. So these are elementary school kids, right? And the movie is wonderful because you see the power of uh, philosophy for these young kids who now all of a sudden have tools at their disposal to deal with issues ranging from bullying on the on in, in the schoolyard to their some of their parents telling them that they need to beat up the the, the people on the other side remember this is northern island so you know uh, underlying co conflicts and so on and so forth it's a it's a great movie because it shows you the power of practical philosophy at a very early age but it's so rare that people actually do that that we have a movie <laughs> when, you, when it happens you make a documentary out of it i think that people everybody should watch young plato and everybody should send their kids to that kind of school but we just don't do it and so once again the responsibility is ours because we don't do what needs to be done. Mm. Well, okay. So, yes, I, I do agree on on that. On, uh, but I also think that it, it seems hard. We had on um, Paul Miller from a, a few episodes back, and he was arguing um, against Christian nationalism. And one of the things that he said was, "We should all follow the golden rule." And I think that that platitude. When we say that it, it sounds good. The problem is when you get down to it. There's certain levels at which the golden rule can kind of work, but then when you get down to real practical levels, it becomes we, me and you, might not agree on what that actually looks like practically speaking. So, how do we resolve those type of tensions with wanting to be a good person, wanting flourishing, and realizing that ultimately, how we want to solve this problem might be at odds with each other. Well, they might be, and 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 certainly there has been reasonable disagreements uh, about how to build a flourishing society for the last two thousand years. But one thing is reasonable disagreement, I would argue. Another one is entirely unreasonable, irrational, based on ignorance kind of disagreement. And I think we have a lot more of the latter than the former. I would be very happy if we lived in a society where most of the disagreements were on the on a reasonable side. It's like, okay, uh, you think. That I think this, let's talk about it, and maybe we'll reach a compromise. That is where the compromise comes in. That's where the politics of compromise comes in. But if, but right now we live in a society, especially over the last couple of decades in the United States, we live in a society in which increasingly the other side, no matter which side we're talking about, yeah. is seen as simply evil, stupid, and they're better off dead. Well, that's not a way to build a society. You don't you don't build a society by wishing that the other half is is going to drop dead. And that is uh, unfortunate. I mean, that was just reading a poll the other day. That is what the majority of Americans are saying: that the other side, whichever it is, mm -hmm. is bad, evil monsters, and they and the country will be better off if they just disappear tomorrow. It's like what? That's not that's not reasonable. That is not a reasonable disagreement. I have a so for all the book publishers out there, I have a book I want to write on wartime <laughs> propaganda and how it's harmed average civilization. Because when you constantly are told that we can go kill people over there, yeah, um, you have dehumanized people to the point to where going killing someone over there is not a big deal anymore. Right. Well, it's also not it, it it you know it's not that big of a deal to go kill people, and so you've so this yeah. constant pressure on always being at war or threat of war or doing what it takes to stop war or, you know, to stop a terrorist or whatever um, that I think that pressure has really shaped modern society to the point to where you can hear a poll like you're talking about and going, Oh, that's terrible. But 
I'm a little concerned that that's why we got there. The other thing is, and this goes back to the question of the characters in your book, which is back then you mentioned earlier, you know, if you were a peasant growing up, um, you had no aspirations of changing the government unless it's violent revolution. And even then you probably didn't talk about it because they're going to cut your head off. But today we have access to power or at least believe we have access to power in a way that we haven't before. And so how much does that make this polarization all the more sharp? Maybe not at all, but does it really make it more where people are at each other's throats because they do realize they can get their policies implemented, whereas before maybe they they couldn't. And so they kind of went on because that's just how the system worked. That is a good question. I mean, we have people have had the power to change things ever since the spread of democracy uh, in you know the last so let's say a couple of centuries uh, or century and a half. So that power has gone up, and and that's not a bad thing. I mean, we do want people to be empowered uh, to have a conversation on how to change mm-hmm. things, and then push their representatives to in fact, implement those changes. That's that's ideally how a democratic system works. I think what we've had over the last 20 years, however, is a increase in polarization, which was in part fabricated on purpose uh, by some politicians. I have specific names in mind, but I will not name them because uh, it's not gonna it's not gonna be helpful to the to the <laughs> discussion. You could um, you're not gonna hurt my feelings, so you can name them, but or you can. Really, no, that's can, okay. I just don't want to lose some of your listeners sure. because okay. I want them to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. I think that see that's an, one example where if I start naming names, I don't have a problem naming names. I, I usually do, but. If I start naming names, then automatically half of your audience is going to say, ah, he's, he's on <laughs> well, that side, right? Okay. For my audience, I hate all the politicians. So there whatever name he was going to name, <laughs> I agree. And I, and I don't like yours either. So just sounds, to be clear. Sounds, reason, sounds good to me. But I think what we've seen is three things, uh, at least in the United States and, and to some extent in a number of other Western countries. But in the United States in particular, we've seen a very concerted effort by certain specific politicians to increase animosity and to play on animosity. Mm-hmm. We've seen a certain number of media mm-hmm. playing into that into that kind of approach, mostly for profit or probably exclusively for profit. I doubt that a lot of the of the people that I'm thinking of in the, in these in the media actually believe what they're saying. Some of them might, but I think mostly it's a question of profit, and we just fell for it. A lot of millions of people just fell for it. And then there is the third big elephant in the room, and that's social media. Mm-hmm. Right? Social media platforms, on the one hand, uh, they do provide some services that are useful. Like, you know, I'm, I'm on social media and keep up with my friends and relatives yeah. from the other side of the world. Right? That's useful. That's a good yeah. thing. Um, but there is also, at this point, very clear evidence that social media platforms are not neutral technologies. They are engineered in order mm-hmm. to do certain things. And one of the major things that they do is, of course, they try to increase traffic because that's how they make their money, uh, selling advertisements. And they discovered, uh, this is a good example of applied psychology, they discovered that one really good way to increase traffic is to make people mad, mm-hmm. to, you know, outrage cells people really get when uh, facebook i'm now i'm going to mention a name mm-hmm. when facebook uh, introduced the anger button that was not by chance that was the result of software engineers at, fa- at facebook discovering that people are 10 times more likely to re- to react 
with anger than in any other in any other way and so that is one way in which therefore which, which means of course that if the algorithm behind facebook presents us with things that we that it knows it figures out make us angry then it keeps doing that mm. and there's pretty good evidence at this point i mean so social scientists have done research on how these things work so we need to stop thinking about those technologies as neutral, and we need to react against those technologies. At some point uh, over the last six months, I actually took a huge break from social media, like for like close to nine months, I was completely off any platforms. Now I'm back with much more open eyes mm -hmm. about what's going on and how and how to use it. For instance, I never use the angry button. <laughs> Uh, right. Uh, and yes, there are alternatives uh, to platform to major platforms like um, Facebook or Twitter. And some of these alternatives do work in a more sensible way. Uh, they're not based on ads, for instance. Uh, their servers are distributed and then they're not centralized. Therefore, there is no single person who makes decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, of course, at the moment, very few people are on those platforms. So uh, they're not really a viable alternative for now. They might become, but we need to be aware. We need to have conversations about these these things because if one naively assumes that oh the media, well the media are just trying to do their job of informing us, no they're not. They're mm -hmm. trying to make money out of and and they figured out that if if they can cultivate an audience of uh, that is moved by outrage, they make more money. Social media are neutral platforms. No, they are not. They're designed in a certain way, and you need to be aware of it. Well, and, and one thing I don't hear a lot of talk about um, is the personality that is the Mr. Authentic or Mrs. Authentic that they, they come on. And I, I'm not saying this person is or isn't authentic. I don't know them. But you'll see a lot of people who just give you the news or just give you their opinion. And if you watch long enough, you realize they have figured out a way that, that it doesn't feel like cable news at night. It feels more real, more authentic. But the takes are just as terrible as everyone as what you can get on, on on cable news, and so you haven't really you haven't really improved. And but it feels better, and I think that's something that hasn't been explored yet, which is this quote authentic crowd that's come about. That's not it's hard to say they're authentic or not because who knows what people are. But yeah. but they tap into this pe people want real, they don't want the fake, and there's some people who are just good in this new age of coming off as authentic, and ultimately. The positions that they take are not well nuanced or thought out, and they're ultimately just the same thing that you could have gotten by turning on cable news. It's, you didn't actually move the conversation forward, maybe slightly, right. but then you've stifled it by this kind of fake aura around these people. But so once again, we're coming down to the fact that too many people don't pay attention and they don't exercise their critical thinking. In other words, they don't practice philosophy. That, that is what practical philosophy looks like. It means paying attention to the ethics of a situation, paying attention to what is going on and why it might be going on. And, and too many people just don't do that, in part because, they, to be fair, because they don't have the tools. They're not taught to do any, anything. You, know, you don't just learn critical thinking by, by going on Wikipedia uh, it, you know, it's, it's, or by reading your friend's blog or something like that. It, it takes effort. It takes education. And one of the interesting things, of course, that uh, has happened in, in this country over the last at least 30 years is been a systematic assault on education. Uh, and the result is uh, American public, you know, American students are doing abysmally in pretty much any field from math to science to uh, literature, etc. compared to uh, international standards. 
And, you know, and it didn't used to be the case. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s, for instance, the United States was at the top in terms of, at the, at the very least, in terms of math and science literacy. Uh, today, we have a lot of people who absolutely have no idea what they're talking about when they talk about science, let alone let alone math. Uh, and it's a result of what I would suggest as being a concerted, multi-decade-long uh, effort to undermine education in this country. And the result is the kind of ignoramuses that um, uh, we now see around most of the time. Well, um, I'll just say this and let you respond if you the final word here. The either-or fallacy, and I know I do it, we all do it on some level, but the either-or fallacy is just in all of these discussions and popular. Once you start identifying people making the either-or fallacy, you can really start to see how many arguments are being made that aren't really sound. They're just, it's just, you know, Biden is this, or he, I mean, there was something with, uh, <laughs> I can't remember what it was with the, with this Chinese spy balloon. And someone's like, either Biden is whatever, or he's this. I was like, well, there's more than two options here. There's actually more than two. I have thoughts of the balloon, like everyone else does, but there's more than two options here. Um, and so in the same with Trump, people do the same thing. And so uh, just, just being aware of that fallacy will help you uh, from my perspective as a non-trained one here will help you start to see how many arguments that maybe you're getting tied up in that aren't really uh, being fleshed out or, or nuanced out. And so I'll give you the final word and then we'll plug the book and get you out of here. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, you know, any kind of simplistic uh, reasoning and the, the either or fallacy is certainly an example of simplistic reasoning. Uh, uh, one of my favorite Italian writers, Umberto Eco, uh, once said that um, there's always a simple solution to any complex problem and it's usually wrong. And, <laughs> you know, the, that that's the problem. It's like, if we're talking about a complex problem and, you know, national and international politics are complex problems, then no, we're not going to have simple solutions. That's why we need to inform ourselves. That's why we need to have a conversation uh, with with other people. And anything that uh, moves us away from that is is problematic. I also noticed actually that another major source of misunderstanding or, or inability to talk to other people. I have I encountered all the time, especially in social media, but but not only. Um, and this is a problem that has actually been pointed out uh, by Aristotle. So we're talking about something that's been going on for 2,300 years. And that is people often simply talk past each other. Mm -hmm. They use the same terms, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Let's say democracy or ethics or something like that. And therefore, they are under the illusion that they're talking about the same thing. But occasionally, when I stop and, you know, I realize that something like that is going on and I say, wait a minute, what do you ex exactly do you mean by that word? Then it turns out that that person actually meant something very different from what I meant. Mm -hmm. And that's why we were, it's not just we were not understanding each other. We were not talking about this, literally not talking about the same topic. Mm -hmm. And unless you clarify that, unless you say, wait a minute. Let's let's uh, let's stop here for a minute and sort of define terms in a very basic manner, so that at least we know we're talking. We can disagree, but at least we're disagreeing about the same thing and not about something that has nothing to do with each other. Uh, that that would go a long way, I think, toward improving discourse in in in, in uh, this day and age. Okay, the book is the quest for character. We're going to link to that. Link to your website. Is there anywhere else you want us to send people to? No, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for the time today. Enjoy the discussion. I know we're all over the place, but I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. 
If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.